morning I want to approach the topic of you were created for a divine partnership. This is the second message in the series of A Glorious Future. And I'd like you to take your booklets that some of you just received and some of you brought back with you. And on page 16, there is a place for you to begin to draw some, or draw, to, to make some notes. Some of you will draw, I know. <laughs> to write some notes, I know that we have a place in your bulletin. But I'm asking that during the series, you'd, you'd use your booklets to put the notes in. And the reason I ask that is because I recognize that through the years, there's time when you keep things like this, that you go back to them. And how many of you have had notes that you've written in your Bible that spoke to you years later after you wrote them? Uh, this is going to be one of those things that I believe God is going to continue to remind you of through the years, and so that's why I ask that you have it. Plus, there's going to be some other things that we refer to that will be in your booklet that will be a benefit to you. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 is our theme verse, and the Scripture declares, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope, and a glorious future. Can somebody say amen? amen? Amen. I have to admit to you that last Sunday was one of the more enjoyable Sundays that we've had together as we launched a glorious future. As we begin to talk about the generosity initiative, as we move forward in what God plans for us, the conversations that I have had this week and the text messages and the interactions I've had with, with many of you have just been confirming to me that there is a great deal of excitement and a wave of momentum for Grace Assembly to take this next step right now. In fact, I, many of you ask me, how long is it going to be before we break ground? And uh, one person put their arm around me in the, the foyer last week and said, Pastor, look around. We needed this new building a year ago. And uh, I want you to know that we are moving in God's time. We believe that he is directing our steps and everything that we're doing. But I, I do want you to know that the unity of this congregation is a breath of fresh air as we move into what God is doing. There's been a lot of sacrifice and commitment that it took to bring this congregation to where it is today from 1918 when it started. And we don't want to take any of that for granted. As you look at your brochure, in one of the pages it shows just a little outline of the different church facilities on pages 6 and 7 on the bottom of, of what it looked like, of where we have been and, and uh, where we've come from. We recognize that this church, once it was planted, spent 34 years at South Avenue and 18 years at West Onondaga and then 48 years here at Fay Road. This church was built onto, again, an addition 41 years ago, but it has been clear from the time that Ralph Riggs planted this church in Syracuse a hundred years ago, that God has had his hand upon this church. There has been continued growth and continued influence. Other men with whom I have the privilege of sharing this platform as a pastor is Robert Canterbury as he pastored here, and the church experienced great growth under his leadership. Other names you might know would be Joseph Flower, who pastored here, and under his leadership, the notes that we have, it says that the church flourished under his leadership, and from there he began, uh, he was elected to be the first New York district superintendent and then became the general secretary of the Assemblies of God. And so from general superintendents to general secretaries and district superintendents, God has brought people into this church where he has motivated them. And today we stand here surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses. But whatever they may know in the portals of heaven, what I know is that they are encouraging us to run the race that is marked out for us. We have the opportunity to be a 
part of a significant church and be a significant people. And I'm not going to repeat last week's message, but I encourage you that if you didn't hear it, that you'll go to the website and that you will listen to it because you will need to hear some of the things that we launched with last week about being a significant person and having God call out of you something significant at just the moment that he needs it. Last Sunday, I also shared with you that during this series that we were going to be sharing people's stories that are part of our church and that have joined Grace Assembly and and call this church home. And so I'd like you to join with me as we watch this one with Elaine and Larry Coots. I'm Larry Coots and I attend Grace Assembly and my current profession is law enforcement. And I'm Elaine Egan Coots, Larry's wife, and I am still working with the Onondaga County Sheriff's Office. We have been asked to spearhead a program here at Grace Assembly for public safety, security, and um, making sure that everybody here at Grace is feeling safe and secure. I grew up at Grace, originally started at um, West Onondaga Street back in, well, I guess 1952 when I was born and uh, helped um, do the planning here at this facility here on Fay Road. Then we came back about what, three years ago, two or three years ago on the Mother's Day and we've been home ever since. Oh, Grace, feeling like a family, it's just every time you walk in the door, you have the, the people standing at the door greeting you, everybody coming up and being overly friendly, sharing their, their aches and pains with you just like you can do with them. You, you just feel comfortable here. Meeting different people and experiencing different cultures with the people that are here, and um, just opening new friendships. Expanding our family. Your mission field sometime is right here in your own community. I'm very thankful that Grace has also partnered with, you know, a couple of the schools that are in the area, um, including the one that I uh, used to attend at Onondaga Road. <laughs> Bring the kids in because they're going to love it here. The programs that are available for the kids and for the teens, it's unlike anything I've ever seen before. For me, seeing the future, I see OCC campus just across the street from the new facility. I see um, a senior housing area across the street. You have the, a big apartment complex right next door. And those three areas alone is a big avenue for uh, expansion on a ministry program. Plus treating the sheriff's department <laughs> who are working 8, 10, 12, 16 hours, and they're right there, so they're our neighbors as well. Uh, why is it important to be involved? Uh, because you can't always take, take, take. Uh, it's got to be like any relationship, a marriage. It takes two, it takes the family. Everybody has to play their part. How would I describe somebody to be faithful in their giving? At our age, <laughs> younger years, you would think, oh, I need this for the walls, I need this for the tables. I, 
I need this, I need... It's really not so much the need as our wants, but there's a lot of things that you really don't need. And if you start to write down some of the things that you have or things that you think you want, you'd be surprised that you really don't want them after all or that you don't really need them. And then if you can make somebody else's day brighter or their lives brighter um, or the community brighter, then it's better to give than to buy and receive for yourself. <laughs> I guess that's the easiest way to put it. Living generously as far as not just time but finances and I know if everybody's fearful that, oh, I'm not going to have enough, but we were always taught that the first thing that you do with your paycheck, whether it's 10% or more, is everything is God's. So He does bless you when you least expect it, and you always have to make sure that if you are a child of God and you put your faith and trust in Him, then you actually have to put your faith and trust in Him and he will work out everything. Just try it, just try it. He works and it works. I love the fact that with each of these new videos and families that we were introduced to, that there are different ministries that are being explored. Last week, we, we saw the ministry to the deaf. This one, uh, perhaps ministry opportunities to our law enforcement. There's all kind of things that I believe God is preparing us for, and it's exciting to see what he's doing. Father, as we approach your word this morning, I now ask that you would just prepare our hearts, plant into us what we need today, nurture it with your, with your presence, I ask, and then lead us with the courage to be obedient. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. For those of you that were here last week, you recognize that last week, the last time that we saw Gideon, he was hiding in a hole. He was peeking out of the hole as he was trying to hide the little bit of food that he was trying to save from being stolen by the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord was leaning against an oak tree and had just called him mighty warrior when he didn't feel very much like a warrior. He'd given him a title that he didn't see in himself, and he was having to decide, how am I going to respond to God calling something out of me that I do not see in myself? And I want to return to the account of Gideon, but I'm, I'm not necessarily going to follow it uh, in sequence as much as just kind of directing our attention to different parts of it. In Judges chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Scripture declares, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon said, how can I save Israel? The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. For those of you that are beginning to jot some notes down in your book, the first point that I would like you to jot down is this, partnering with God in the strength you have. Partnering with God in the strength that you have. God clearly was giving Gideon some instructions that if he would do his part, that God would then do the part that only God can do. Now, I have been told at least twice this week that, uh, by people that told me that, Pastor, I just want you to know that I am entering into the lottery for holy reasons this week. <clears throat> I was unaware because it's not something I participate in, but I'm told that the lottery is a billion dollars or something of that nature. And here's the way that people, Pastor, I just want you to know 
I'm praying that God gives me the right numbers. Because if I win the lottery, we're going to have the best church ever. I've heard that more than once this week. And while that intrigues me, I hope one's willingness to be generous with the kingdom of God is not predicated upon winning the lottery first. Because I believe that God addresses this in Gideon when he says, when he says to him, the first instruction that he gives to Gideon was this, start doing what I am commanding you to do in the strength that you already have. In other words, be about my business, start to obey with what you have, with what I've already given you, and as you are about my business with what you already have, then as you proceed in obedience, my presence with you will supply whatever you lack to accomplish what I want to do through you. In other words, there is a level of faith and there's a level of provision, and oftentimes what we do is look and we say, if I had more, I would do this. If I just had this, you can't believe what I would do for you, God. And God's going, start in the strength you have. I need you to start where you're at. And then as you begin to show faithfulness with what I've given you, my supply will come for you then. One of my favorite stories in all of the Bible is in John chapter 11. And many of you know this because it's about the raising of Lazarus. And in, in John 11, verse 38, it says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb, and it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And Jesus said, take away the stone. But Lord Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. And Jesus says these words, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called with a loud voice, because it makes sense if you're talking to a dead person, you're going to yell, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, when I get to heaven, I want to see this on Blu-ray. I want to see exactly what this looked like. But we look at this, and, and the most interesting thing about this, the reason that this miracle was allowed to take place, the greatest miracle was not when Jesus cried into a death chamber and raised somebody from the dead. The greatest miracle was the fact that he talked to two sisters in the middle of a grieving process and said, I need you to start with the faith you have. Because they were hurting and they were upset with Jesus and felt like he had let them down, but he comes to them and he says to them, I need you to roll the stone away. And it could very well have been, if this was me, here's how I would have reacted to Jesus. What are you going to do, Jesus? If you'll just tell me ahead of time what you're going to do, I'm all for it. If you're going to raise him from the dead, can you just go ahead and do that and have him knock on the other side of the rock? Then we'll roll it away. You get the glory. Everybody celebrates. It's a win-win. Jesus says, that's not how it works with me. Before you see my glory, I require that you work in the faith that you have. And so somehow these sisters overcame all of the natural fears that they would have had and rolled the stone away that provided God the opportunity to do a miracle. You see, if you wait for the perfect circumstances, you will never do something significant for God because perfect circumstances never come. You'll never have all the finances you think you need to be generous. It will never be the right time. But God said that if you remain in me, we will bear much fruit. 
And so the first thing that you need to know this morning is that you have to go in the strength that you have, obey in the strength that you have. Secondly, this morning, when God's plan meets our preparation, amazing things happen. When God's plan meets our preparation. In the glorious future initiative that we are in, we have a theme verse, and it states this. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. How many of you who are parents have ever told your children to do something just because you said so? How many of you had that told you by your parents? Did it make you mad? Because this is one of these instances where God is saying to you, listen to you, listen to me. I know the plans. I have for you. It doesn't say says the Lord. It says declares the Lord. In other words, there's this emphasis as he's speaking to us. There are more instances in my life than I would care to admit when I have come to God and told him, I've got some great plans. Would you be willing to bless it? Because here's my ideas. And I start going, and they're great plans. And oftentimes he says, oh, that's good. No, put it away. I've got a better plan. You see... We have seen in our preparation to handle the growth of our church in these last few years, we have explored all kind of plans. In fact, there are some plans that if if he had just blessed what we wanted to do, it might have been easier, or it could have been quicker, or less costly, but God has constantly reminded us he is the plan maker, and we are the people he has chosen to work his plan through, and he goes, I know the plan, because I made it, and it's going to be great And so Gideon, standing in this hole, having just had God declare that he's going to be a mighty warrior, and he he begins to trust what the Lord says to him. Once Gideon had accepted that God was calling him to a plan that was different than his own, he began to do something significant by asking for confirmation. Okay, God, if this is what you do, can you just confirm this for me? In other words, Father, I, I am so thankful that you see something in me that I don't see, and I'm thankful that you have a great plan, but... Is this really what you want me to do? Is this really your plan, or am I just really outlandish in the way that I'm looking at this? And and, and so, God, because my mind always goes to worst-case scenario, and we know his did because he's hiding in a hole. And so he says, because worst-case scenario is I jump out and do what I think you're trying to tell me to do, and it doesn't go my way, and I die. So can we just get a little confirmation here? And he tells God right there, Lord, can you give me a sign? Any of you ever said that to the Lord? Lord, I, I want to obey, but this is going to look bad if I'm wrong. Can you just give me a sign? So he tells God, okay, Lord, if this is really you, then stay right here. And he runs and he prepares an offering, and it's of meat and flour and bread. He puts it on a rock. He pours broth all over it. And the angel of the Lord who's there takes his staff and reaches over and touches it. And boom, flame comes and just devours the whole offering. This was an offering of confirmation. He says, Lord, I'm going to offer you this. And God confirms to him that he is with him. And then as if one offering wasn't enough, the Lord looks at him and says, now you've given me an offering that I confirmed I'm with you. Now I want you to give me an offering of consecration. And he tells him that what I want you to do is I want you to tear down the altar of Baal, break the Asherah pole, build a proper altar of the Lord, offer the prized bull, and then as you do that, I will accept that offering and it will indicate to me that you truly are consecrated because you're getting rid of all the peripheral stuff 
in your life and among your people and among your family. And it says that after he gave that offering to the Lord, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. It was after an offering of consecration. I do believe that in this process, God is going to begin to whittle down our needs and our desires into things that honor him. And there's going to be some peripheral things in our life that he's going to say, you need to cut this off because it's not helping you grow in the Lord. And as we do this, we enter into a place of consecration. After that offering of consecration, then he comes back and says, now God, I might be hard-headed, but can you just give me a couple of more signs? Just a couple of more confirmations, and we know that there was dew only on the fleece and dry ground around it, and then the next day it was backwards, and the fleece was dry, and the ground was wet. And having confidence in God's plan for him was very important. There are some people that think this was a very foolish way for Gideon to act, but here's what I like. I like the fact that Gideon never ran to another man to ask for confirmation. He kept going to God because God is the one that says, I am the plan maker. And so when you feel God speaking to your heart, you run to God for the confirmation of what he is wanting to do within your life. And then when you have that confirmation of what God is asking each of us to do, then it's okay for you to say, can you just, can you just confirm this to me? Can you confirm it? After the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, after his offering of consecration, it says that he blew a trumpet and he gathered an army. In other words, there was something recognizable about him that the Spirit of the Lord had given to him, an authority that he did not have before. He's not a little boy in a hole anymore. Now he's out there blowing a trumpet under the anointing of God, and 32,000 men come gathering around him to be a part of what's going on. And God looked at this and this preparation that he was doing and, and looks at it, and Gideon knew that even with 32,000 men, the task was impossible. But as he began to prepare an army and his preparation intersected God's plan, the path to victory became clear. And God looked at him and said, Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands. How many of you know God is not going to share his glory with any of us? When God does something for his glory... We get to be a part of it, but we are not going to share the glory with the Lord because he's going to do something in such a way that his name alone is to be praised and glorified. And he looked at Gideon and he said, if you win with this army, there are people in that army that are going to think they want it on their own and it's going to develop a smugness among my people and I don't want that. So God leads them through a series of tests. First of all, it was a test of fearlessness. He said, I want you to ask everybody that's scared to stand up and then go home. And so out of these 32,000 men that had joined the army, Gideon said, if any of you are afraid, you can go home. Now, I don't know what the first person was like that jumped up from there, but one jumped up and then 22,000 other people said, I'm with him. And they jump in the, because how many of you know fear is contagious? Fear is contagious. And they jumped up and they ran and left the other one there. And then after there was only 10,000, he takes them through a test of fervency. He said, Gideon, there's still too many. There's still too many men here. So take them down to the water and I will sift them there for you. And so in a secret test that they didn't even know they were going through, God leads them to the water and he looks at a bunch of them that immediately fall in the water because they're thirsty and begin just to put their face in the water and drink it. But there was 300 that knelt down on a knee and began to scoop water to look around. What that revealed was that there was an attitude in 300 of them that you never take your eye off the enemy. Now, folks, I want you to know something. 
Satan is not very happy about the ground that we are taking here and the ground that we're about to take. Because what he recognizes is that when God's light begins to move into darkness and the victory that the Lord is going to win in lives, every empty seat within this place and every empty seat in the new place is going to be filled because God is taking victory over the darkness of Syracuse. There are those that are in addictions and those that are... Families are broken and there's strongholds of darkness and poverty and gangs and drug abuse and hopelessness. And the Lord says, I am going to turn my light on through you and I'm going to bring them home. And the enemy does not like that one bit. So we must be on guard. God does not call us to believe in ourselves and in our own adequacy. You can never be too small for God to use, but you can be too big. Because God will usually test us when we are unaware of it. I can tell you right now, a glorious future initiative is going to test you. Because many of you are like Gideon in the fact that as you begin to approach the Lord, you are worst case scenario thinkers. You begin to think, okay, okay God, if I give you a larger gift than I've ever given before, what if I don't have enough after I give? What if I give you so much? You're going, oh, that was way more than I, you know, and will you be capable of helping me after that? Or, or Lord, what if I give and you don't respond in the way that I think you should? What if I give this, Lord, to you because I feel prompted, but, but what happens if suddenly after I give this gift, I suddenly need this money more than you? What are you going to do for me, Lord? And we approach praying and asking God what he wants to accomplish this from this great place of fear and all of the what-ifs that begin to come into this. And I believe that everybody here wants to participate in a significant way to moving God's kingdom forward. But the test of trust comes when we recognize that what God may be asking us to do severely compromises our own ability to provide and protect ourselves financially. And will we be able to step out when we say, Lord, you're bringing me to a place of greater vulnerability so that you can show yourself true, and that makes me uncomfortable. Because God was clearly telling Gideon, I want you to dramatically decrease the odds of your personal security in the middle of this battle so that you will never doubt that it was me and not you. And Gideon's response to all of the what-if fears that are recorded in verse 23. is said, but Lord, the Lord said to him, peace, be not afraid. You are not going to die. His worst fears, well, Lord, I'm going to die. And he says, you're not going to die. In other words, what he's speaking to us as a church today is, since I am the plan maker and I know the plans I have for you, he's looking at you, Grace, just relax. I got this. I have got this. And this is where there, our own desire are tested and tried and it's important for us to know that listen we don't negotiate and we don't buy God's blessing in other words we don't say Lord I will honor you and give this amount toward what you want to do but here's what I would like you just to sign on the dotted line in return you're going to bless him this way this way this way this way and if you're willing to sign this contract I'm all in and we start to negotiate with God. And the reason I know we do that is because some of us get really disappointed when God doesn't answer prayers the way we think he should. And we say, but Lord, I've been faithful in. And then we give our list because in our own minds, we have signed a contract. And God says, I don't work that way. I'm not going to negotiate this with you. But here is what happens, however. We don't 
negotiate God's blessing with our giving, but we gain God's blessing through our obedience. When we obey, we step into the life of blessing. And so when you step out in faith and partnership with God, he will give you a marker of his faithfulness in your life that when you sow in faith, what he will give back to you is peace. Oh, hallelujah. That when we're walking in faith, what he gives to us first is peace that he's got this. The reason that I'm asking you to spend so much time in prayer in making this decision, the reason that I'm asking that you would be here on November the 10th, Saturday morning between 8 and 12, that you would come and spend at least one hour in prayer during this time is because I believe that we must hear from God and that he must confirm to us what he wants each of us to do. And that in the middle of that, that when we walk out of here, there will be a sense of peace that God will give to us. God is no respecter of persons, but he does respect our preparation because there's a principle of God at work here. Your preparation is an act of believing faith for his divine blessing. Your preparation provides that your human responsibility gives God an opportunity for his supernatural provision. Your responsibility says as we do our part on earth, God does his part in heaven. As we position ourselves in obedience, God sends the victory. And in your preparation, it states that I can't do God's part, but God won't do my part. We work together, and you are positioning yourself for God's purposes, not your own. So when we answer the question for how he prepares us, we need to say, Lord, I am preparing myself to partner with you. And then thirdly, the benefits of God's partnership. Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. What happens next for Gideon, and I'm just going to quickly go through a list of things, is absolutely epic. With the number of his army reduced to 300 men, which is obviously so small that the victory will have to belong to the Lord, God finally positioned Gideon right where he needed him to be, vulnerable. It's a place that Gideon had fought his whole life not to be. He didn't want to be vulnerable, but that's exactly where God brought him to that place because victory is gained through our vulnerability, not our self-confidence, but by God-confidence. And we need to learn the lessons of dependency so that we may move into the lesson of confidence. And so here's what the battle looked like. Gideon divided his 300 men into groups of 100, and they were placed around the valley in different places. Here's the armor that God gave this mighty army. I want a trumpet in everybody's hand. I want you to have an empty pitcher in the other, and I want you to have a flaming torch inside that pitcher. The strategy was this. Gideon said, here's the strategy. Once you're placed, watch me. Everybody watch me and follow my lead. And the cry was this. When I start, I want everybody to yell, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And 300 men followed Gideon's instructions. When the moment came, they blew their trumpets. They broke their pitchers that were in their hand. They held their lamps high in their left hands, and they yelled, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon! And the irony is in all of this that none of those soldiers carried a sword. Not one of them. The only swords that were in this whole battle were in the hands of the enemy, and the Lord had the enemy turn on each other, and they killed one another with the swords. Even though they yelled, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, not one of them had a sword. What is next for Grace Assembly, I believe, is just as epic. 
We are in a time where the destiny of our church and the destiny of our lives are at a crossroads. As you connect to a glorious future, through your obedience to God, you will bring significance to your life, you will bring significance to your family, and you will see the significance and influence of Grace Assembly grow under the hand of a God who is leading us. God has called us to partnership with Him, and our progress in a glorious future will go no further than each of us in our obedience will take us. A few days ago, I saw a Facebook post by Heather Sylvia, and she was taking pictures of her son and her husband who were smart enough to jump out of an airplane because Ryan, for his 18th birthday, wanted to go skydiving. And as he brought this idea to his dad, Paul thought, boy, that sounds like just the kind of experience that a father and son should, should have together. I'm sure Heather was all on board for that. So when I saw the video of what had taken place, I... I couldn't wait to get on the phone because I, I just had to talk to Paul. And I needed to find out what in the world was going through your mind. I said, walk me through what had happened. And he goes, well, he said, we went through this brief time of training where they, you know, kind of told us how it's going to feel when we're, we're in the harness and how we're supposed to sit on the plane and then how we're supposed to shuffle over to an open door in an airplane and... And then how we're supposed to fall. Now, I do that naturally. I don't know if I need training in falling, but he needed the training in how he was supposed to position himself to fall. And then before you get on the airplane, they make you sign a waiver that if anything happens and you die, it's not their fault. <laughs> so they get on the airplane, and as it begins to take off, Paul indicated, he said, I, I begin to feel, he said, I don't know about Ryan, but I begin to feel a little, uh, we're really doing this taking place. And as they got up to the, the jump height, he began to look out the windows and recognize that's a long way down. Now, he was jumping in tandem, which meant that the expert, the instructor, was literally harnessed to his body. And as the door opened and he shuffled over to the door, you look out and you recognize 12,000 feet is a long way up. And in that moment, the instructor begins to speak to him and and says, listen, I am securely fastened to you. I know exactly what I am doing, but I can't take over and give you the experience that you want and the joy that I know you're about to have until you jump. I know how to do this. I know how to open the chute. I know how to guide us to hit the mark. I know how to bring us in safely, but I will not push you. You have to jump. And standing there at that door, the father recognized if I don't jump, I'm never going to hear it from my son ever again. <laughs> and Paul jumped out, and you can see this beautiful picture. What I loved about the way Paul described this to me is he says the moment he jumped out, even though he was harnessed to the expert, it didn't, it didn't prepare him for, for jumping out with your mouth open and having your cheeks going... <laughs> He said, once I gathered myself and, and closed my mouth a little bit, I begin to enjoy the scene of the, of the journey of descending at hundreds of miles an hour in this free fall. And he says, I also remember the moment when the instructor pulled the chute and we gently were instantly hanging in the air and suddenly peace. I would imagine that smile came after the chute opened. <laughs> but I want you to look at the view that Paul got to see as he's hanging there. He went on to say that the landing was perfect. All he had to do was lift his legs up and slide right on in on his butt. 
And after that, he jumps up and he turns around and he got to see Ryan. I was teasing Ryan. I said, I would have loved to see what your hair looked like going 100 miles an hour at an airplane. And he got to see his son as he came in and perfect landing. Then I asked him, Paul, would you do it again? He goes, absolutely. You see, this is the picture of faith and partnership. The one who is in control of the entire process can't do what he's an expert at until we jump. And then the last picture that they have of the two of them safely on the ground having experienced something together in tandem with an expert that they will never, ever forget. Folks, I want you to know that we are harnessed to God's security. And we will stand there and he will whisper in our ear, I can only do what I do, what I'm an expert at doing, after you decide to jump. And the decision to jump into obedience is entirely up to you. Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 speaks of this partnership when it says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. In other words, through the one who I'm tethered with, I can do it all. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now in your booklet, and we're going to be having displayed up here on the front, is a picture of the pledge card and the amounts. These are also in your booklet, and I would encourage you to take a hold of them and look at them. I do not want you to fill out a pledge card. In fact, we will not even be providing these for you until November the 10th because this is a time of prayer right now. What's going to happen on the 11th is that you're going to be given that card and after we've spent this time in prayer, we're going to be having a first fruits offering which means that for many of you, the first step that you take toward fulfilling your three-year pledge is going to come in that offering and we are believing that it will be the largest single cash offering we have ever received at Grace Assembly because we are beginning to uh, have some expenses that we need to pay for as it relates to the architect and things of that nature. It will be a day of celebration. We know that God is the master of this project. Cindy and I have had an opportunity for several weeks to pray. We've had these jumping out of the plane discussions with God and with each other. And we are all in. We know that God is fashioning a future at Grace Assembly that we do not want to miss the opportunity to partner with in the best way we can. And we are sensing that God is directing Cindy and I over the next three years to give $45,000 toward this project because... We believe God will provide it. This giving is above our tithe, and it's above our missions giving. This is new money because we're not going to rob God of his tithe, and we want to make sure that we've invested in our missionaries well, and we hope that as we go through this that our missions giving and our other ministries will not suffer as you're trying to rearrange money so that you can fulfill this. We are believing that since God is calling us to do this, he's going to provide it through each of us, but he asks us to jump out of the plane. This will be the single largest gift Cindy and I have ever given to a project, and we've given to many through the years. But it's important for you to know that I am not going to ask you to do anything that as your pastor I wouldn't lead in and do first. I want you to know something. There's no safer place to be than harnessed to God wherever he wants to take us. And since he said that this project belongs to him, we're going to trust him. So I'm going to be asking you to pray this week about what does your partnership with the divine God look like? In partnership with God, what do you want to do? 